Welcome back to a sort of young person's guide to prog rock. We are about to get freaky with, for the benefit of Mr. Kite, on with the second half of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. So John Lennon walked into an antique shop in Kent and he saw a poster promoting a circus. And most of the lyrics in this song actually revolve around the contents of the poster. They only made some slight alterations um, in order for the words and the lyrics to flow a little smoother. There's a great photo of John Lennon. He bought the poster and framed it. And there's a photo of him like standing with the framed circus poster. I'm sad to know that he, Lennon never liked this song. He was, (laughs) he expressed his dissatisfaction about this song um, pretty bluntly. But yeah, there's a real Mr. Kite and and Mr. Henderson who performed stunts and amazing tricks for a live audience. And the poster, I guess, inspired Lennon enough to want to write a song about it. And I think this song specifically feeds into three themes, three whole themes that we've been talking about. The first is Anne's theme about looking out through the world is that this is another song where, not a newspaper this time, but he's looking out through the world at something that he wishes, I guess, he could experience, maybe. It brings up the the absolute colossal effect of George Martin on this. Because this is a George Martin tour de force. And George Martin quoted, I think specifically about this song, that Paul actually asked for, like, you know, certain chords or certain notes, or he could, like, hum the melody. And he said... John would talk in colors, like, play it so that I can smell the sawdust. They wanted a song that could be identified as a carnival. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So when I hear this song, um, I, I like I can't help but think, like, why did he pick, like, a carnival? Is it just because it excited his imagination? Or was he making a comment like... We've been up on stage circus performing for everybody for years, and now I can reflect on that through this little window of this, you know, once upon a time circus performance poster. Um, uh, like, was he expressing some something like internal, or was he just all was it all external for him? I feel like we have to look at the music to kind of determine the answer to that, less so the lyrics, because they didn't write the lyrics, right? They took the lyrics from the poster almost directly. So looking at the composition of the piece and how utterly complex it is and some of these wild things they did, like they they sped up the sound of an organ um, to try and spliced and re-spliced all of these sounds together to get this sound i i'm more interested in the answer the question why was it so important to have it sound like a carnival and nick to your point maybe it is because that's how they saw their life going was stuck on this tilt-a-whirl it's funny isn't it sometimes i feel like we overanalyze this stuff it's like maybe they just thought it's cool to try and pull that off in the studio i don't know but but yeah they, they they did pull it off though it does feel like you're at a carnival I mean, I think to to thread both of those needles, the interesting thing about this song is that it is creepy as all get out. (laughs) Creepy? Creepy. And I think both, like, maybe they felt like uh, I'm up on stage performing. There's an element of, like, fun and being seen or whatever. And then there's the I'm on the roundabout of press junkets and on planes and I'm just a monkey in a circus. And I think you get both of those because, you know, like, you know, you're listening to the jaunty, like the jaunty organ. And I'm for a second like, oh, yeah, I really wish I was going to a circus. And then the calliope bit in the middle starts and is going on a, you know, on a whirlwind. And you really have that Willy Wonka in the tube of nightmares feeling You're like, oh, my God, I'm being assaulted by clowns. That's trip vibes. 
bad trip vibes. Mm-hmm. No, and I, and I actually think that's the interesting thing about this is that uh, I don't know. Again, don't know if this is a drug song in that in that specific regard. But I think it's like, no, we've been having a groovy time. We are improving ourselves. We're getting better. We're fixing that hole. Um, but now let's get a little bit weird with it. And this is definitely the point in the album where things start to get weird. The end of the first side and then going into the, the beginning of the second The beginning side. of the second. The third theme that this song really encapsulates is, again, them looking back to Victoriana. What is Victoriana? So Victoriana is roughly the culture surrounding the Victorian age, so Queen Victoria in Britain, and that's basically the latter half of the 1800s. And that's, A, when you get a lot of the creepy Gothic stuff. So when we think about, like, creepy um, Gothic mansions and whatnot. But also it was an age that put a heavy premium on beautiful design. So they'll have put a lot into fancy dresses and beautifully made buildings and neo-medieval type of stuff basically as a world in which they love doing kind of artsy craftsy and highly decorative stuff and that that rolls then into the edwardian age which i think sergeant peppers is probably more in because they're hearkening back to the the dance hall vibes and again that was i think queen victoria's son and possibly grandson something like that but that's the downton abbey age so again we're continuing uh, with a lot of the really highly beautifully decorative stuff. And that's where you get those kind of two terms. Oh. Beautiful. Um, and I don't, again, I have no idea what the appeal of that for them at this time was. But just that that old-timey... It's probably just like 50s nostalgia in the 80s in, in, yeah. in the U.S. You know, probably just like, oh, we're just looking back. Interesting. Maybe. it's also It also could be a commentary on just how little has changed, even though it feels like they're progressing so fast. I mean, they're in the space race at this time, right? And yet you can still go back and draw parallels to Victorian times, which has got to be kind of, I guess, demotivating, a downer, if you will. And from a British perspective, you know, the times that they're harking back to, like, you know, air quotes, um, glory days of the empire from modern lens is quite a dark idea. In the 60s, it's like that, you know, the Britain is a forgotten empire and everything that's going on over in the States is more interesting. And actually, I'm, I won't go too deep into this point because I don't know the ins and outs of this history. But I really wonder if so Britain obviously got absolutely battered in World War One and World War Two. And those are the, the kind of atomic blast that separates Victoriana times from where the Beatles are. And Britain was a big, mean, aggressive empire in Victoriana times. And then they got beat up real bad. And now they are in the Beatles times. And I'm not going to talk about what the truth of everything is. But I wonder if the perception of the world is Britain as the new Rome, the big, you know, biggest navy on earth, the conqueror of the entire world in 1880. And then Cool Britannia Part 1, Swinging London in 1967, and that the Beatles could then project that. And if you think about it, when you think of Britain in 1967, it's now peace and love. It's not mean old Victorians. And I think there's an element of, like, the Beatles could really wash the slate clean in a, in a cultural sense. I, as Ed said earlier, um, like, John had just finished filming an anti-war film. So I wonder if, you know, that's sort of feeds into your point there. Yeah. No, and and I I wonder, you know, again, with this, the world awakening thing, obviously the Beatles will just spend the rest of their lives saying no to war, as in being vocal proponents of no to war. John will hand back his member of the British Empire knighthood. You know, I I think the the Beatles um, will try and project a new face of britain so we end on track seven benefit of mr kite and we segue into the next song the first track of side two within without you george harrison's indian adventure what do we have to say about this looking through through a 2022 lens now it feels like almost comical cultural appropriation by him uh 
like every stereotype of you know your western white guy coming back from somewhere in the east with with this evolved worldview and he won't shut up about it at parties and he's bored his friends to death with it at this point like that's what it feels like and it, it, so it, it's it's kind of funny that it probably at the time uh didn't feel like that at all but yeah, i think we've no, been through I, that trope i think we've been through i think we've been through that trope so many times in the decades that follow that it now feels uh it feels like cultural appropriation. <laughs> I think Harrison, what, what, Harrison was the first one to go to India, right? Like the rest of the band went at some point, but Harrison had already been once and yeah. studied with the teacher. And that's why he came back and wrote this. So, yeah. I think if the George's defense, you know, like he isn't just some guy who's picked up a sitar in a shop. Like he, he has studied with Ravi Shankar for six, yeah. week, for six <laughs> weeks, but it's only six weeks. You know, he's not, he's not, he hasn't mastered the thing. He's come back and he's playing some stuff, and it. But actually, he's considering how little time he's spent with the instrument. I think he's, he's, he's like he's shown some, some chops. You know, it is it is pretty. But when you hear someone who's been playing the instrument for ten, twenty years now, it, it can really blow your mind just because of the way the instrument works. You know, the there's the you know the speed of the trills and stuff. Like, there's no way Harrison could do that, but. He 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 plays the part well, I think. Sorry, is that that's him on the instrumental break? I think so. I yes. might be wrong. <laughs> yeah, so he he plays um, sitar over a combined orchestra of Indian classical musicians and Western classical mm-hmm. musicians. And I was going to say again, maybe it's an a, an overplayed trope now, twenty twenty three, but there's part of me that just loves the kumbaya aspect of that they've taken eastern western musicians and george is as you say he probably was the annoying guy at the party just talking nonsense about his latest sweet vibes but he tried so was this the introduction of eastern philosophy to the summer of love or was that already happening and the beatles were just representing that here i i think it's brian jones isn't it who's the first sort of western guy to bring it to pop music i think uh, with paint it black was it is it literally with that so and then also with the um, norwegian wood mm. so 1965 and then i will say there's again a history i'm not entirely down on but obviously uh, because of the empire britain will have had a massive indian influence and Hindu philosophers will have come through the like London World Expos many, many times. Um, and Hindu classical musicians will have performed in London many, many times. And we're talking over the course of the entire 19th and 20th century. They'll have come to London. And by the Summer of Love, I don't know what it was that made it part of the Western popular music. But obviously it's a key component of the British psychedelic boom. Yeah, and the reason why I ask that is because uh, is this just a reflection of the Indians' in, in influence on Western culture because of this song? I, I just wanted to see what was the chicken or the egg. Like, it sounds like this was the chicken. With all of Sgt. Pepper's, I think the Beatles are both coalescing a psychedelic image and promoting it and taking parts of other psychedelic stuff. Like, I think they're in the epicenter. I don't know if they're the originators or the originals or whatever. I think they both take and promote and become the face of 1967 swinging London Britain. As I say, just go back to your point about, um, you know, the relationship with, you know, British and Indian culture. You know, the, um, like we know the Beatles went off to India to spend time with a Maharishi later on, but they talk about having seen him in Liverpool as a kid, as kids, you know, just doing a talk. Is it in Wales? Was it Wales? Right. So, so you know, they, they'd seen him on the telly probably. And, you know, it's nothing. It wasn't like a new concept as such. It's just it just became hip in the 60s for whatever reason. And, and I think this, again, probably comes to the changing of the guard generation wise. Because of, of uh, Liverpool, they'll have had Irish Catholic influence for sure. They'll have Anglican, obviously. Um, and then I think things are getting groovy. And the kids start looking east. And I think that's what this, this, and then, you know, previously Tomorrow Never Knows in the last album. Who knows what they know about it or how deep they go with this. I think it's just, again, our parents did this, but we're done with that. We're going to do that. 
And I have no idea, for instance, how deep George Harrison's Hindu philosophy or knowledge went, but he went hard on it. And I think, again, it just became a, he's not his parents. And this will be the, you know, true for all 1967's kids. We're not our parents. And I guess that segues right into when I'm 64, right? So we come to when I'm 64. So you can burn down the system, but at the end of the day, the system had some sweet songs. The system? This is, I don't know, the system uh, of, of 1920s music halls. Burn it down. All right, let's rewind that. That segues really nicely into when I'm 64, which is Paul's throwback to his parents' music of, I guess it's 1920s music hall. Um, he would have seen this type of music in Liverpool. So Paul McCartney wrote this song when he was 14, and they used to play it um, when their amps didn't work because it works well on piano. So this was a song they had played in Hamburg when they played in Germany and um, will have just revisited at various points. And it's funny, I, I feel like this is a song that probably already existed in the ether somewhere, and then Paul just coalesced it to a song but yeah it's just a i don't know just a fantastic jaunty tune again and this really highlights how much range there is on this album um i feel like we've not repeated a song type yet this did make me want more clarinet i wanted more clarinet on all of the other tracks (laughs) after listening to this i mean it, it goes like it just bubbles along so nicely on this song um, I know we're not really getting into sharing our opinions about these songs. We're more talking about just like the experience of listening to the album. But for whatever reason, I just never like this song. It feels, and it makes sense that he wrote it when he was 14. Uh, and maybe that's why. Uh, but it feels so, it feels like too cute to the point where it's saccharine. Like, I, there's just something about it that I'm like, this just takes all the edge off of this album. Um, it blunts it for me, honestly. Like if when I listen to it all together, um, and because they were doing some really edgy, cool things, and then then this song's just randomly thrown in there. It's like, okay, this is the this is the sharpie that accidentally ended up in the wash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I say I'd quite happily switch Strawberry Fields for this any day. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. for sure. I will say I feel like that's the the essence of this album, though, is they just threw so much at the wall, and they tried every single type of song. Because, you know, when we get to Let It Be, it's like maybe three types of songs, and I'm glad they're all there and they all do great. But I feel like this this sense of exploration is what makes this album so whatever. But you're you're able to, to get those duds then. I don't think it's a dud. I think it's important for context. Oh, say Ian doesn't support your argument that it's that this album is the Paul show, the fact that it even makes it on here at all. Oh, yeah, no, I'd say that's probably true. I, as in, I think there's an element of if John had been coming up with a million strawberry fields and across the universes, those would get chucked on for yeah. sure. That's fair. I say that this song is important for context because we... We've talked a little bit about how old they were when they recorded this, early 20s. Um, so this song was written in their in the early teens and is so... what I can see how it reads as saccharine, but it, to me it just comes off as so purely innocent of a 14-year-old boy, you know, singing about staying with his parents when he's old and gray. Are they still going to take care of him? And just sharpens that contrast of what has happened to them over the last nine years and how their attitudes towards their parents and the system have changed and altered based on things. And society changing. Well, I think at that, at that age, when you're 23, at that point in time, that's, that's a point in your life when you do though, start to, even though that they're so heavily soaked in the counterculture at this point and, um, obviously part of the, the summer of love type of movement that's about to happen. But there's there are these little twinges that I catch of them kind of romanticizing uh, a more modern as opposed to postmodern uh, worldview. And mm-hmm. I, I think it's just Paul being cute and thinking like, well, our parents didn't have it all wrong, right? No. I, 
I don't know because I felt that same way. Not to make too much of a callback to getting better, but there's this there's this theme where it's like, well, you know, maybe not everything in the world's completely broken, and I, I don't hate everything. It, it reminded me of actually um, some of the themes that come up in 1990s punk, like skate punk, where you know there's there's a no effects song from 1997, exactly 30 years after this. It's called All Out of Angst, but it's like that theme just keeps coming up over and over, you know, at, at 1997, that's generation X having these same feelings. But I think, I think Paul's just hitting on something that we all do feel a little bit at that age. Yeah. This is all music. Whereas 24 year olds trying to capture the experience of being 16. Yeah. Like this is, this is yeah. popular music is, is you have to access that part of you when you're 24 and a jaded pop star. And then, capture the the i'm a 16 year old angst or whatever i suppose having said all that i while i do believe it does belong on this album i wouldn't argue with your decision to skip this every time it comes up yes yep i'll be interested to see if everybody else has throw has their like throwaway track because i I feel like each one of us do. Mine hasn't come up yet, but mine neither. Mine we had yours, and Nick we had yours. Uh, I I guess you're right. So track ten, we come to lovely Rita. Does anyone know the backstory for this song? Her name's not actually Rita, right? Her name was something else. The meter maid, the meter maid who gave Paul the ticket. All I know is he loved the phrase meter maid. That's, that's that's all. I well, know. that's just it. He he thought it was really funny because uh, he got that from America because we call them meter mates here. So he picked up on that while he was visiting, and just thought it was hilarious. So it, her her name was Meta Davies. She gave him a parking ticket outside of the recording studio where most of Sergeant Pepper was recorded, and they asked <laughs> they asked him in an interview why he called her Rita. And he responded with, well, she looked like a Rita to me. And this is, I think, encapsulates the the Randy Newman criticism I brought up earlier, which was <laughs> just singing about what you see. He saw someone giving him a ticket and he wrote a song about it and then elaborated this grand story where he goes on a date with her. <laughs> oh, Paul. I do think there's a, there's a, not to be, again, too body or anything like that, but I think there's a little hint of uh, him admitting a kind of a gender-bending crush there. You know, her uniform and the way she's dressed makes her look a little like a military man. Mm. Maybe dealing with some complicated feelings there that he doesn't quite know what to do with yet, but obviously being accepting and open-minded of it. Like, hey, well, game on. Gotta go on a date. I, I, I like what I like where this is going. <laughs> Does her sister make an appearance in the song? Yes. Why does the sister okay. show up on the couch? That okay. was so weird. That's in. It's like at the end. Because there's a, a panting section, if if I'm remembering. Oh yeah, that's at the so end. Here we go. So, um, oh there you go, Ryan. Took nice. her home. I nearly made it sitting on the sofa with a sister or two. Oh well. Paul. Oh, that's way more. Because made it. Uh, we all know what that means. <laughs> Played Monopoly. Yep. <laughs> But he nearly hey. made it. He nearly made it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, how often did you have that happen as a teenager, right? Like, you, you'd be interrupted by that person's sibling or something, of some of their awkward happenstance. <laughs> yeah, fair, fair enough, yeah. After, after, like, hearing the backstory of this and then really thinking about the song, like, yeah, this is very clearly a Paul McCartney song. I don't know what I was thinking, thinking that it was a, a John Lennon song. I think the only reason why I did think it was, uh, cause, probably because I was just not paying attention, but he goes into his head voice. He starts singing more nasally in this song. Um, yeah. Where, as we get to this period of Paul, he's using more of his, you know, he's singing with his diaphragm, his chest, more getting the, the low quality of his voice out. Yeah. When before he was just doing the sort of, you know, rock and roll harmonies with John, and it probably just made more sense for him to be in his head voice for that. Uh, when I thought it was John, I was like, oh, this is really cool because uh, he's going back to his rock and roll roots, which later he does in the White Album. You're so right about that, too. But uh, what makes this song like really one of a kind is, is this the greatest arrangement of kazoos ever? Yeah. It is a kazoo. OK, because yeah. it sounds like a kazoo. It, it is kazoos. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. <laughs> Such an underrated instrument. 
So I, it's probably the greatest arrangement of kazoos ever. And then I, I take back what I said about <laughs> instrumental prowess pre-prog. No true prog album can have kazoos. Yeah, maybe that's the dividing line. I think as you bring up about maybe gender bending, maybe him being with her sister too, maybe him kind of being on the couch. I actually think what's really interesting is this is is pretty explicit. And I guess Norwegian Wood was getting pretty explicit about what the Beatles were up to. But I think we've talked about chemical liberation and spiritual liberation. And then obviously 1967 is famous for sexual liberation. So maybe that's another element that the Beatles are at least touching on um, as explicitly as the British popular music would have allowed at this point. Yeah. And maybe I'm reading a little bit too far into the made her look like a military man uh, line. No, because he, he calls out, he calls out at the end that she picks up the check. Yep. Well, that's not bad. That's another bending of gender roles for sure. But there also was the, uh, the fashion movement in the time, at least in kind of the high street London type of fashion you buy there, 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 there were some very military inspired fashions. And apparently <laughs> Heath also thought that was kind of silly and ridiculous. So yep. I don't know. So then we come on to Good Morning, which is uh, John's third contribution to this album. And to give a personal opinion, I say this feels like a Rubber Soul like B-side. So th- I feel like this song has pretty much no business in any capacity being on this album. I don't feel like it's particularly great. No. And, and I feel like it has the Rubber Soul revolver wacky good times element. But it's not psychedelic. It's not interesting. And I'm happy he's saying good morning. Thank you, John. And I leave it there. When the lyric, the lyric is, uh, I've got nothing to say, but it's okay. And I'm like, yep, that's exactly, that encapsulates this whole song. (laughs) You've got nothing to say here. (laughs) Yep. This is my, this is my throwaway track. A hundred percent. Skipped it every time. Um, And it's my least favorite lyrically because I guess there was a little bit of backstory that he was somewhat inspired by some cornflakes commercial that he saw on TV. Mm. And, but it just, he doesn't land any punches with his lyrics here. Like it seems like it's trying to be a critique of, you know, modern middle-class consumerism and advertising. And it's just so lame and tired and uninspired. (laughs) Like maybe, and maybe I'm more cynical because, you know, we've heard that message in the 50 years of music too, that follows this. But, um, the only thing, I, I will say something positive about it, though. It won't be just negative. I do love the arrangement and the way the brass band complements some very punchy playing from them. It sounds really cool. But yep. <laughs> overall, the song, <laughs> Well, I just, I think both these songs, Lovely Reader and Good Morning, like, unlike a lot of the songs on the album, you can perform them on stage. This, these are guys playing... Songs as bands again, both of these, you know, um, lovely Rita. You've got like a bit of that little Richard kind of influenced Paul McCartney singing, which I love. Yeah, yeah it's it, it's the band songs again. But interestingly, if you think about Hendrix and his love of the Beatles, you know, he he homaged this album famously a few days later. You know, the the, the album you cannot perform live. Like four days later, he plays the whole thing on stage live. But yeah, like he he does that on was it Crosstown Traffic? He plays a kazoo on that, doesn't he? So maybe that was a cool thing to do in the sixties. I don't know. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> next time, <laughs> I agree with everyone that says that this song uh, doesn't belong on the album. It's a skipper for for me too. Um, but to say good things about it, uh, I will double down on the arrangement because it, they do use three different time signatures in this song, which I think. Uh, is one of the most prog things you can do. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I'd say that, like, just for that reason, like, this song is interesting, but it's not something I like listening to. It's uh, it's too repetitive, I'd say. Um, and uh, again, he has nothing to say. So, <laughs> I'll say the window dressing of the really neat arrangement and sound. It's like, let's put lipstick on this pig because the song sucks and we know it. <laughs> Well, I did think it was, it's probably a coincidence that the commercial that they borrowed that rooster crowing was a Kellogg's cornflake commercial. And the origin 
of cornflakes in American society. And now here we have this song about a normal, boring, unsatisfactory life. I, that was not lost on me. That's probably yeah. coincidence. It was probably not intentional. But the history of cornflakes cereal, if you do not know, is worth reading about. <laughs> what might it pertain to, Anne? Oh, boy. Ryan can tell this better. This is a topic for another pod another time, but uh, the Kellogg brothers being uh, health nuts had some very interesting ideas about how to not only live a more regular life, and I mean that in the digestive way, but quell your sexual urges. Cornflakes were a very important part of that, but that's for another time. Yeah, the Kelloggs were very much in favor of a normal, boring life. And so the fact that then this song's lyrics is about that and kicks off with the crowing of the rooster for that commercial is just funny. And you can hear more about uh, our takes on Kellogg's on our other podcast, Serial. <laughs> <laughs> Nick! Oh, that's pathetic. We're gonna get well sued! <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so... Yeah, no, this was the this was the song where I just had that like, oh, the other three just feel checked out. Oh, like I, yeah. I I think cuz I obviously the rest of the album so interesting that by the time I got to this, I was looking back at the rest of it and thinking, "Wait, have I actually heard George or Ringo or John besides Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds? Like have I really heard them on this album?" And I actually hadn't noticed until I got here to track 11 where I was like, "Oh. Oh, wait, where were they?" And I think that was when I first had the, oh, I think this is a Paul, a Paul Macca joint. This was written by Lennon, though. Yes, and I think it was when I got to this, and I was like, oh, so this is, uh, this is his third contribution, the other one yeah. being a masterpiece, and then a creepy circus song, then this. Which he also calls a throwaway piece of garbage. He says that? So he even, he agrees with me. Yeah, so, he <laughs> There we go. Oh, I John. think we all agree with John on that one. Yeah. So we come now to the reprise, and I think there's nothing much to say in, except for it reprises the intro. Yeah. It's almost like a breakbeat that you'd hear from like soul music uh, or like R&B at, at the time. I like this version, I think, better than the first one, and I don't know, really have a good answer for you other than the drum beat. So. I mean, I think it, so, it rocks that little bit harder. Yeah, it does, and, and when I heard it, that was my first thought was, wow, uh, this could be released today, this intro. This would not be out of place on the radio in 2023. I guess pushing back against your argument that there's no blues, this is about as blues as it gets with the guitar solos that take place here. I don't think Ian has made that argument yet, actually. Oh, that's right. So refuting an argument you will make later. (laughs) Oh my God. Inception. I'm with Ian. There, There ain't no blues here whatsoever. In fact, this track is a little proto-punk to me. Like, the the, the syncopated drum beat, um, the vocals are a bit shouty, the guitar solo is a bit atonal. I, I, I think it, it wouldn't be completely out of place in some, well, modern being like the 1990s, but uh, yeah. Yeah. No, and I was going to say, it, it, I do just love that little burst. And actually, I love when bands do this, when you have a little one-minute song or whatever. Just a yeah. burst of something different, just to say, uh. And I feel like we close out then the conceptness of the album and come to the grand finale, slash, probably one of the most perfect encore types of songs, A Day in the Life. Obviously, this is one of the Beatles' masterpieces. And I'd say we're still more earthy than 70s prog will be, but you can see the signpost. We've, we've, we're stitching together a bunch of different songs into a kind of sweet. We're adding weird sound effects. The lyrics are still kind of down to earth, if you want to call it that. But again, building on Anne's theme, we're again looking out through the window because this is another song based on newspaper articles that John read. So how do we feel about Day in Life? Love it. Yeah. I, I think it, it really, like, it just, it for me, it has a little bit of everything. Because I think the funny thing is it's got john's not cynical it's got john's kind of like dark psychedelia lyrics and then it's got paul's jaunty slice of life whatever just piercing through the middle and i actually feel like it's it's one of my favorite of their combo tracks 
I have a lot of thoughts about this song. The only note that I wrote down was, this could be the whole episode. I believe we could have talked about this one song for at least an hour. And I think you're you're absolutely right. I think this and Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds are probably, for me, the beating hearts of this album. They, they're the whole ball game. Which is why, I guess, a lot of us felt like, we, that's why we all felt like this was a, a Lennon album, not, not, yep. a, not a Paul album. Not a Paul album. Um, I, I think that's already been stated. But I, I think it's really interesting to like have this song after the reprise of Sgt. Pepper's. It's like, for this one song, we're stepping out of the Sgt. Pepper's uniforms real quick. Because we, we have this really like deep, thoughtful, emotional roller coaster of a song that we would like to share and we'd like to do it as ourselves uh, which i think was an interesting choice it certainly makes for a great album ender like it's almost like they're saying like okay hey that that whole thing about us being another band that was the trip and then this is the message like and not like sort of like the emotional message not the literal like we're telling you in our lyrics this is what it's about just more like, oh, it was all a dream, and now we're the Beatles again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so this is where the concept actually really knits home for me. If that, if that's really like how that everything that they just played was their alter egos, and now they're back to themselves. And I was going to say, I feel like as a, it's funny because the lyrics are so psychedelic and weird. Well, they're not even psychedelic; they're just really weird. I don't think they're weird, but continue. I don't think they're weird either. Yeah, I guess I don't think they're weird either. Yeah. So what do we all think about the lyrics? Um, well, I think it's like like you said, it, he's reading headlines. Um, and it's very much of the time. Like, I know we've performed this song at, you know, just random fun, just get-togethers. And, like, the lyrics really make no sense in terms of, like, modern day like they're not they're not used as allegory they're not used as a metaphor it's he's just telling you these things that are happening and it's up to the audience to give it meaning uh, i think like anyone who claims to say like oh i understand the message that john was trying to tell me here is probably just coming up with their own idea but i'd love to hear opinions on that if i'm if if you think i'm wrong but uh really it's it is a day in the life it's like he was reading the newspaper headlines of that day and this was what was going on. Well, and at the same time, people are still living their life. And that's what um, McCartney's Bridge is all about, is someone waking up and going about their life. And tonality-wise, it does completely shift in mood and tempo and instrumentals. Because that, that is life. That's what's going on in the background while John is reading these newspapers and these absurd things are happening that we don't think of as absurd until someone points them out to us, which is why the third verse or the verse after the bridge is my favorite where he remarks on someone must have counted those potholes because it's the type of thing that you just consume when you're reading the paper. Um, I read the news today, 4,000 holes in Blackburn, Lancashire. Oh God, I can't say it. Someone say that better for me. Lancashire. Lancashire. (laughs) There we go. Um, and though the holes were rather small, they had to count them all. That's, that's such a British sentiment. I love that. Now they know how many holes it takes to fill the Albert Hall, because that's how many seats are in that hall. It's 4,000. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, and it's a, th- it's a throwaway line in the newspaper, right? There's 4,000 potholes. But is that accurate? Someone counted those? That's ridiculous. It is a very British thing to do. <laughs> It's yeah. There is somebody's job to actually do that. It's it's a hilarious idea. I think what it hits on though is the fact that you know he's reading these headlines. Life is not a movie. Doesn't make narrative sense. It all seems completely disconnected. It reminded me of again. I'm going to make another uh, comparison to to punk from the 1990s. But there's a Bad Religion song called Only Entertainment. This is from 1994. But it's just highlighting that this news, it's all mundane. It doesn't actually help you grow as a person or actually be better informed about the world. It's just they're picking these things that are shocking or entertaining or annoying or titillating or inflammatory. or And that's a perfect example. It's like, well, how trivial is that? Who cares that it's now they know how many holes it takes to fill the Albert Hall? And the juxtaposition of verse one and verse two, where verse one yeah. is about a car crash 
they think, oh, maybe this is a famous person. We don't remember who this is. Though. Right. And then the second verse all about this giant world changing war that no one cares about except for John Lennon. Yep. And then Paul comes in for a, a literal day in the life. And yeah. then Paul reminds us, yep, everyone is still living their lives. And it yep. just is such a, oh, this song, I, we could talk about this song yep. for a long no, time. No, and I think this is very much the, like, as you say, it's the grand thesis of the of the album. Absolutely. Yeah, I just want to say, like, while you're thinking about how beautiful the song is and all the interesting meanings behind it, I can't help but think about George Martin with that four track four track producing that record like yep. you know as as you know that section of all the orchestration coming in the end of the day of your life and like things are building you think right okay he's done he's done three tracks now he's got to bounce it back to that fourth track they get another four track maybe bounce it onto that one and then it it builds and builds and builds and then you've got the dong 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 i can almost hear george martin going <sighs> Yeah, like we landed the plane. <laughs> I wanted to hear your take about that musical orgasm, Ed. <laughs> that is literally what it is, though, isn't it? Oh my god, it's just it's it's just a feat of engineering genius, isn't it? Um, it's incredible, incredible. And when you're using tape like that, every time you add another layer, you're adding a layer of like hiss and distortion, and it's it's crystal clear. It's so it's so expertly done. It's you know I guess like as you get to the end of a format and you know they invent the eight track like at the end of that year, this is the best of the equipment. So I guess that's kind of why it's so good. But it's it's the guys in the studio. It's the you know they like scientists in Abbey Road, don't they? It's it's incredible stuff and it'll always be impressive. And that's yeah, all I have to say on that really. <laughs> So you will have probably all noticed one massive gaping thing that was missing from this album. The blues. For the rest of 1960s music, you hear the blues absolutely everywhere. I can't really say I hear it at all on this album. Whoa. <laughs> I can't say I've noticed, but you're right. Yeah. I suppose, you know, you could you could argue that the those song structures that you hear that are like solid... I was talking earlier about um, uh, getting better, first chorus, first chorus, middle eight. That does come from the blues. But, yeah, it's not overtly blues anywhere. It certainly doesn't have that vibe. It has psychedelic vibes, which kind of come from blues musicians a lot of the time. But you're right, it's not, it doesn't feel like it has any blues mentality at all, does it? No. I have to, I have one comment on the blues, which was how common was it for British musicians at this time to be singing blues? So pretty much in this era, you'd have had the Yardbirds, Cream, Eric Clapton in general. Obviously, Jimi Hendrix, though he's American, is very much a British artist. I think because of, and actually even the earlier Beatles will have just, you know, I don't know how much like deep Delta blues, but obviously they'll have just taken bluesy sounds that they would have gotten during the war especially being a port port city like liverpool they'll have taken lots of american blues records and then all of that's been bubbling away in preparation for 1970 when led zeppelin takes the blues back to america Hmm. yeah because at this point in time especially like mod culture in england they are in love with american r&b at this point which of course very very blues influence but yeah and that's a great point led zeppelin rewinds all the way back to and they actually play some delta blues songs yeah and so i think the it's interesting to me that the rest of britain or the rest of british popular music said we love the blues and this album which was the album of the summer said nah we're gonna do like weird 1920 show tunes so i don't know what to make of it i was just like it was an interesting omission that again i hadn't thought about because for me, this feels like a really complete album, even though I think they didn't quite succeed in the concept album sense. Mm. But spiritually, it hangs together as a, 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 a monolith to me. Does anyone have any other thoughts about this album? One thing I forgot to mention while we were talking about Day in the Life that I think should be on the podcast is in 2011, Rolling Stone ranked the Beatles songs and the in the 
the top 10 I think are worth taking a look at. Number one is A Day in the Life. Rolling Stone ranked that as the best Beatles song. Yep. In 2011. And I would completely agree that I think this has some John, some Paul. It even has some good Ringo drums. Like, I actually think this might be a a best of. It's interesting, um, you know, everyone's favorite song is, you know, totally subjective. So you have to think about, like, can you make an argument against that song being the best one? And I can't. I honestly can't. No. Even though I have a different favorite song, uh, I I wouldn't argue that it is their best song or that it isn't. So that's very cool. So I wanted to ask Ian, why why do you think all the other members besides Paul were checked out for this album? Like why was why did why was Paul the one that was the real creative driving force behind this album in your mind and? Uh, I mean, and you're, you make some very compelling arguments to the point where I'm thinking of agreeing with you, but uh, it still feels like it still feels like a John album because the best two songs on it are very John, or at least the most you know celebrated songs on the album are very John. So why why do you think that the other members were so checked out right now? Um, it is a threefold answer. So John, I think, was always in and out. I think he is a tortured soul. So I think when he's there, he shines brightly. And when he's not there, he's gone. And you kind of, I don't want to say, yeah, no, you notice his, his disappearance because he's, he's John Lennon. I think George and Paul have always had a contentious relationship because Paul, I don't know if this is true, but Paul is a better guitar player than George and a better arranger and better, better, better. And I feel like George just gets steamrolled. And then I think Ringo's there when Ringo's there. Like, I think Ringo, he's happy to play if he's happy to play. And if if Paul wants some Ringo drums, he asks. And if he wants Ringo just to go, then he does that too. And so I don't think Ringo was a strong force in that sense. So I think for those reasons, I think the other three for this album were just like, eh, have fun, Paul. And we'll catch you again in the White Album. And I think you can see this dynamic. I don't know who's watched the Get Back documentary, but you can absolutely see this dynamic where Paul is running the show and George is annoyed so much that he leaves. And then John is not there sometimes. And then when he comes back, he's like this little ray of sunshine that obviously brings his Johnness. And then Ringo's there. But uh, you have to say, it's maybe it's a credit to George Martin. Maybe it's a credit to Paul. But like without knowing the history and then just listening to this album and having just, you know, a, a, an ear for who's the, singing the lead vocals, um, you'd think this was a very complete album from everybody uh, because of the way that the final product turned out. But uh, yeah, you can make an argument that this was all Paul. Maybe it was a credit to him or George Martin for the cohesiveness of the eventual sound. I just wanted to understand your thought, or, or I wanted to understand why you thought, think, or thought everybody was so checked out. And yeah, that makes sense. So Ryan, where does this album for you sit in the Beatles history and music in general? The Beatles, I, I actually argue, never become a prog band. I would never put them in that uh, category. But they manage to plant the seeds of a genre that they won't participate in. And they had already done this weird experimentation with Revolver. You know, we're going we're gonna to screw around at the point where this is basically non-performable music. But this was their first, and this is probably one of the most commercially successful examples of, you know, I'm putting this in air quotes, concept album, where they're at least trying to tie some sort of cohesive theme together, as opposed to just collecting a bunch of songs and saying, this is our best work right now, please buy it. <laughs> So I have a concept that I always think of albums in as mixtape versus album. And it's it's loose and porous, but basically I think there's albums that are like Dark Side of the Moon, where every al- or every song is this beautiful gem and it hangs together in a bracelet of music. Yeah. This is scratching at that because it doesn't flow... In Dark Side of the Moon is basically a song. You could argue it's one track. And yeah. this does not do that. Okay. Uh, I think this, I, I wouldn't consider this a mixtape in the sense that we think of mixtape, you know, Drake putting out a mixtape now and what kind of eclectic approach that takes versus a, a regular studio album. 
yeah, it's it's somewhere. It's just this weird in between. Yeah, but I, I would I would definitely agree with your your thoughts about this being. I think the Beatles very much veer off into not prog, but this album does plant that sweet sweet seed of bands saying, "Well, we could do something weird," and and that's as simple as it is. I think it was this was a commercial smash. The Beatles, the capital B Beatles, did it, and it's weird. It's really weird. And I think yeah. that idea that we could do this and then obviously then the techniques they'll play around with in the studio will also, you know, go forward in the into the classic 70s prog world. Yeah, they disappear further into themselves uh, and stay off the stage for the rest of their career, whereas Prague to Follow very much becomes this bombastic spectacle yep. meant to be played in the stadium. Yep. And did you have further thoughts? I think this album signified a very important turn in rock and roll. But as far as its contribution to prog rock, I do agree with Ryan that I think it planted some seeds that it allowed other people to grow and flower. So this is not a this is not a podcast about rock and roll. Otherwise, this this album would be would... fun. Yeah, this would be a very different. We'd, we'd talk about different things here, and the the effect that it had on the world and on rock and roll, and the I think the state of the world in which it was released is very important to keep in mind. But trying to narrow the focus specifically to prog rock, I agree with Ryan's takeaway from this. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, Ed, where does this album sit for you in the history of the Beatles? I think I alluded to it at the beginning, but I think this is transition time. You know, it's it's clearly they've gone from having this horrible time where they're supposed to be having fun on the road, touring, and it's just a car crash. And now someone said to them, all that stuff you've learned to do in the studio, you can now take your time and play and be creative. And I think we may not hear it right now on this album, but this is like a gateway to that new fun period, I think, of experimentation and exploration. Excellent. So, Nick, for you, where does this sit in the history of the Beatles and rock in general? I think this has been stated before, but in a more colorful way to state it, I believe this is, was the beginning of the Beatles unbuttoning. You know, they were always kind of edgy, counterculture, adjacent people, but this was like, we're leaning into this because we love this. And... You couldn't make an album like this with that much creativity if you didn't love it. You can still be checked out and still love the the jauntiness and the whimsical psychedelicness of it all, but you couldn't fake this just to narrow the scope now to or broaden the scope actually to the to Prague. Sometimes you can like with the level of skill and instrumentation, you can fake it. But for this one, you can't. Because there was a lot of soul put into it, even though they were just, like Anne said many times, just like looking out the window and describing what they're seeing. Uh, it does have a soul, and it doesn't feel um, commercialized to a to an, any really extreme degree, like some of the early stuff did. And I think that's really the unbuttoning for the Beatles, is, is that they have the time and the money to do whatever they want. And this is, you know, maybe they wish they could have done this sooner. This is a question that I'm going to just boomerang back around to everybody here. I know we're kind of tying things up, but could Prog Rock have ever existed without this album? Or was this just giving everyone permission to be like, oh, we can do this. The Beatles did it, so we can do that. Yeah, it's a twofold answer. The first is, again, I, I don't know if the Beatles invented psychedelia or just the forerunners of it or the front people of it. Like, I, I will never know the chicken or the egg. But I will say it's absolutely clear to me that the fact that the biggest band on earth, getting a little weird, gave everyone license to get weird themselves. Yeah, uh, I, I agree. Even though this is not my favorite Beatles album, um, uh, I do have a lot of reverence for innovation. Anyone that's an innovator uh, in terms of, especially in music. And this is a very innovative album. And it really changed the whole way. If we're talking about the history of rock, it changed the way that that rock music was recorded and experienced. Then in the context of Prague, yeah, just to say it again, like I think it, it did give everyone permission to be weird. And I was going to say, I think that's my final two spicy points is 
in regards to benefit of Mr. Kite, I can draw a direct line between that and the Juggalos. <laughs> <laughs> no, just... I ordered I ordered hot salsa, not like Rui Caliente. <laughs> Come on. This is a hot take. This spiritual precursor to the great Malenko, Juggalo John, as he was known. <laughs> of course. Okay, no, so my actual, my actual spicy point. So I think that Magical Mystery Tour did everything but better. Like, I, I just like it more as an album. It's more pleasant. There's enough psychedelia to keep it interesting. It's still fun and colorful, but it goes down smoother. This one, interestingly for me, has always been in the middle tier of Beatles albums, which is a great place to be, but I've never loved it. It's, it's, it's heavy and it's dense, and I appreciate bits that they've done here and there. But Magical Mystery Tour, I just cruise through. Love pretty much every song on it. Oh, in terms of reach, which album got more people to listen to it? This, for sure. Because I think that's kind of key and plays into, yeah. Yeah, I know. And I, I think Sgt. Pepper's is absolutely the seed from which Prague will germinate. And Magical Mystery Tour is absolutely a collection of singles. That was going to be my point about Magical Mystery Tour as well, is that it's more commercial pop. And um, I think something that Prague does embrace is uh, discordance. And I think that there was a lot of discordance on this album, which is why it doesn't go down smooth. Like, The Benefit of Mr. Kite is like a circus song. Like, that doesn't go down smooth when you're expecting to listen to a rock album. Um, So, I mean, as entertaining as several of these songs are and innovative they they're not it doesn't feel like rock and roll because it's not and um i think that's what was the most interesting thing about it was that they're a rock and roll band that didn't make a rock and roll album it's a journey not a commercial release yeah there were no singles on this right no yeah no interesting yeah there aren't i guess Is, is there a beatles album that has ever done that like after that after this. I can't think of one. Mm-hmm. So this really was a departure. We are being a different band. We're putting on the Sgt. Pepper's clothes and, and we're playing this game. And as Anne mentioned, I think the Day in the Life being the number one Beatles song, according to the Rolling Stones, just without being Hey Jude or Let It Be, that's testament to how good this is. And like, I, you know, I think this has had the critical reach that I wouldn't give it as a everyday average Joe consumer, but I I, I will I will say I, I wouldn't disagree with its impact. I guess. So I did actually I did actually pull up the list, um, their most recent one from Rolling Stone, and actually the Beatles album that made the top ten is Abbey Road. Revolver is number eleven. Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album ranks number 24 of the greatest albums of all time it's number 24 on a list of 500 which is still pretty good yep excellent so uh before we sign off here um there's one quote that i read that just uh i i just enjoyed it and it was from john on the question whether this was a concept album or you know like just about the fact that it was a concept album at, at all he said uh, it was a concept album that went nowhere. It only worked because we said it worked. <laughs> God damn it, John. <laughs> so that concludes Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. I have been your host, Ian Prize, and this has been A Sort of Young Person's Guide to Prog Rock. Do find us over at Prog Frog Pod on Instagram, and if you have any more thoughts, queries, or long opinions hit us up at helloprogfrog at gmail.com. Thank you so much for joining me, your host, Ian Prize, and thank you to my guests, Nick, Anne, Ryan, and Ed. So that's where we leave the Beatles today. They would go on to create a motley assembly of psychedelic songs collected in Magical Mystery Tour, but the death of their manager and friend Brian Epstein led to an era of soul-searching and musical abundance captured in the double LP, The White Album, They then started rehearsal for a live concert, which never happened. This project, Get Back, resulted in an album, a rooftop concert, and a documentary that captured the fault lines growing in the band. But just three weeks after that album, they would go back into the studio and create their final album, Abbey Road. And thus ended the Beatles. But Sgt. Pepper's would live on in popular music, setting a bar for what a band could do in the studio. 
But the Beatles weren't the only ones rocking the boat in the summer of love. Next week, we join the Moody Blues for their orchestral rock masterpiece, Days of Future Past. 